Well, as we open God's word, we're in Luke chapter 9, about halfway through. We've got some very exciting things that we'll hear about before it comes to an end. So we're in the middle of Luke chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 18 and and go through verse 27. This is actually one unit that Luke has composed with three paragraphs. We'll read it and then hear the sermon. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May God bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his word this morning. Amen. Amen. Before we talk about the cost of discipleship, let me mention a wedding. We often know that in June is a month for weddings, and I'm one of those. On Friday, uh, my lovely wife and I celebrated 39 years of marriage, and we're making plans for 40. We're pressing on. That's back in 1984, boys and girls, if you can't do the math. 1984, it was a good year. What happens at a wedding? At the heart of it, is it not the charge to a bride and groom, to a man and a woman whose names are known, who enter into vows in the sight of God and public witnesses, where those vows are solemnly taken, they are explicit, names are stated and actions and pledges are made. I, David, take the laurel. It's a solemn event with serious consequences. We say things like, until death do we part, as long as we both shall live. Marriage vows. How important, how serious we ought to take them For God sees and hears. 
Today, God's word makes clear for us the cost of getting married or joining Jesus. The church is the great uh, bride and Christ the great groom. That picturesque language from elsewhere in the New Testament. So that's my transition to what we're talking about. Here, Jesus will tell us a little bit more about himself. And he says, if you pledge yourself to me, if you follow me, this is what it will require. That's how these three paragraphs hang together. Jesus clarifies who he is. He speaks of his cross and the necessity of that cross for our salvation But then the shoe drops. And Jesus says, if you want in on this, if you come to me, bring your cross and follow. It's a package deal. May God bring his word home to all who hear it today. The first thing we're going to take up is exactly that, the identity of Jesus. Jesus is, as Peter answers, the Christ of God. We do well to remember that this book we're looking at in the Bible, this Gospel of Luke, it's not simply a biography, but it's a written account of the person and work of Jesus with the intent of informing and persuading us who he is. So that's what Luke set out to do way back in chapter 1. To set out an orderly account of this Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, our Savior. And at this point in Luke's gospel, he's brought us to the climax of the first question. Who is Jesus? And then the second half of his gospel will take up describing the mission of Jesus and how it all works out. The time has come for the question to be answered. As Luke tells us in verse 18, now it happened. It sounds rather matter-of-factly, but he's saying at some point at this time in the ministry of Jesus, when he had been spending a lot of time alone praying, and just a footnote, that's a heads up, something big is about to happen, right? When Jesus spends time alone in prayer, He might be calling his disciples. He might be getting ready for a great miracle or some other great event. Those prayer times of Jesus. But it says he had been praying. He'd been praying alone, which is that significant comment. But he says, the text tells us, the disciples were there. So here comes the transition. And it's Jesus who asks them a question. They were typically the ones asking questions. And he starts out with the easy question first. Who do the crowds say that I am? That's what he wants to bring up, who he is. But instead of calling them out, he just starts generally. What's the word on the street, men? How's the message getting across? Remember, I sent you out two by two on this ministry uh, training thing. And and it sure drummed up a lot of crowds. We had over 5,000 for lunch the other day. So he asks explicitly, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, 
people had lots of ideas. This, this, this Jesus, he wasn't just a teacher. Something bigger's going on. Maybe, maybe it's, it's John the Baptist come back to life. Because we know John the Baptist was around recently, and he, he sure was changing people and challenging uh, traditional ideas and, and getting people connected to God. But there's also all these miracles. Some people were saying, no, somebody with miracles, like Elijah or one of the prophets, man, when they were around, they also did miracles. And we know that Jesus has, has some power over the wind and the waves. Jesus uh, can heal just about anything. And, and uh, people even coming from the dead. This little girl, did you hear that one? No, no, no. Who, 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 who is this Jesus? He's got to be a mighty, miracle-working prophet from of old. That's the word on the street. Many might have been saying uh, he's the Messiah. But that's where Peter answers. When Jesus presses them, his second question is, who do you say that I am? And as we read it in the scriptures this morning, isn't Jesus asking each one of you the same question? Do you have the right answer? We know Peter's answer, and it's right. The other Gospels that report this this moment, whether it's Matthew or Luke, also report Jesus' commendation. Well, Well done, Simon, son of Jonah. And it was God who brought you to understand this. Here Luke is just very specific in getting the right answer out, but then explaining Christ and cross and consequences. So we're in Luke today, so we're following what Luke was inspired to write. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. It's the right answer. What does Christ mean? It means anointed one. It means Messiah. You're not a Messiah. You're the Messiah, the definite article. You are the Christ of God. Not just a deliverer, not just a radical rabbi or revolutionary you are the one which is profoundly correct when we've read Luke's account we know how Peter came to the right answer Jesus was praying and and we don't know what he was praying but he certainly was praying for these that he had called to himself whom he was training to carry the kingdom forward after Christ ascended back into heaven he was praying for them by name and perhaps especially for Peter oh lord there's so much more to be done with Peter open his eyes widely lead him into truth may he strengthen his brothers even now Whatever Jesus prayed, I'm sure it was part of this answer with Peter coming up with the truth about Jesus. Do you think about other people when you ask them, what do you think of Jesus? Let's just pause here and and come back to 2023 in upstate New York. When you interact with people, do you ever ask them if they know your best friend? If they know your Lord, as the Spirit might lead, have you said, what do you think of Jesus? I encourage you to try it. It's a game changer. 
It'll certainly turn the conversation and give you opportunities to do what God has made you to do and paid a great redemptive price for you to do. Ask someone this week, who was Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Try it. But remember, when, when people aren't sure and they're trying to piece together what they know, you can't twist their arm or force them to become a Christian. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. I read a great quote this week uh, and was so excited I put it out on my social media, which I don't do much anymore. Phil Riken had said, when people are struggling with the claims of Christ, it is not just more evidence that they need, but a gracious work of God that changes their minds and hearts. This is the true biblical doctrine of salvation, that God enables us to confess our faith in Christ. It is rational to believe in Jesus for salvation, he says. But no one ever comes to him by reason alone. Only the Spirit of God is able to persuade us to savingly believe that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior. So as you ask and then quietly wait for their answer, pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, give them the right answer. We haven't even finished the sermon, and you've got at least two assignments. Ask the question and pray. So Peter has the right answer here, that he is the Christ. What does this mean? What does this phrase mean, the Christ of God? And, and please remember, especially boys and girls, if you've never heard this before, Christ is not just the last name of Jesus. All of us have a first name and a last name, a surname. My first name is David. My last name is Bissett. I have a few titles we could put in front. Jesus was Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter calls him the Christ, which means the anointed one. It's a title. It's a prophetic title, and it means anointed one. And anointing was done in the Old Testament to certain types of people who were entering into the service of God. There was oil, there were rituals, there were prayers, and and God directed in his book that if you have a priest, especially the high priest, they should be anointed as they enter their service. If there is a prophet, he is anointed by the Spirit of God, and you should look for that in his prophecies. And if you have someone as king, they should be anointed as king as they serve over the people of God. It marks them out as chosen by God and blessed and equipped by God. So when Peter says Jesus is the Christ of God, he is from God and his anointing is of divine authority. And Jesus comes now in that day as the greatest prophet, the highest priest, and the mightiest king. And that's all that Peter's pointing to in various degrees. It's the right answer. But Jesus works with it in an unusual way. Let's read on. Back in Luke chapter 9, after Peter had spoken up and said, You are 
the Christ of God. In verse 21, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Okay. When the Bible takes a turn, just hang on. We may not understand. (laughs) Wait, wait, you... The whole gospel's been trying to get out the right answer. Peter gives the right answer, and you go, What's happening here? As Jesus is going to present himself as the Christ, he is going to teach them exactly what that means, and he's going to add the crucifixion. He is the crucified Christ. So he needs to begin by controlling their understanding. He needs to develop their understanding, so he uses this messianic secret charge. And we hear it often in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, where Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet, or just go tell the priest, or go, go home and talk to your family. Don't, don't spread the news yet. And that that's, can confuse us. But Jesus has, has said that for two purposes. Because he wants to control the misunderstandings. If I told you I had a great candidate for president, and I was going to tell you his name, you would already be filling in the, the matrix of what that means. Oh, then, if you, if you think you know the best candidate for president, they must be this, that, and this. Oh, and of course that. We already have our shopping list and our understanding of what would make a great president. Jesus says, I am the Christ of God. That's correct. But you're going to need to know what it means first. So don't just start running around joyfully calling me the Christ. He wants to control misunderstandings. What were some of the misunderstandings? We've heard that. I don't want to go on at length, but people were looking for a military deliverer from the Roman occupiers. They were looking for some social justice. They were looking for uh, some spiritual renewal. They were looking for a whole bunch of things that were all pointed to in the Old Testament. There is military conquest, and the kingdom of God comes out on top, prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, the lion would lie down with the lamb. That's prophesied. The trouble was they were confusing the first coming in Christ with the second coming and how God would have to first be the suffering servant before he was the returning conquering king. Jesus said you need to understand some things first. And another reason he needed it kept as a messianic secret because he had to accomplish those things first. If the crowds took him on his shoulders and, and walked him to Jerusalem to the palace... That's not the same as going to Golgotha, to Calvary, to die. So that's why there's this messianic secret. So what does Jesus say after giving them that warning? In verse 22, he expands. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The the one we've waited for for centuries comes and you're going to be killed? Suffer and rejection from our religious leaders? Okay, maybe we can understand that. They don't like you so much now. Suffer, reject, die? But notice 
the key word in the teachings of Jesus. M-U-S-T. Must. There is a necessity to these things. Jesus isn't just saying, oh, I've got a vision. I know what's coming. Hold on to your hats. Jesus is saying these things must happen. Not that these things would happen, but they had to happen. It was a divine necessity. Because there would be no forgiveness of sin without a payment for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The soul that sins shall die, but Christ becomes the great sacrificial substitute. He is our atonement. By his stripes we are healed. By his blood we are forgiven, washed, and cleansed. There is a necessity to these things. So hold on to your expectations, disciples. Put them in check. Hear the word of God and let the Lord Jesus undertake his mission. A necessity of suffering and death. Jesus' life was a life of suffering and rejection. And the the cross would just be its culmination. But notice that's not the end of what Jesus teaches. Here and in Matthew and in Luke and in John, Jesus teaches, I'm going to die. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. But more often than he mentions the death, he also mentions his resurrection. Do you see it at the end of 22? And be killed and on the third day be raised. You're going to be struck down and killed, but on the third day you'll be raised. That's that's amazing. That doesn't happen. People don't come back from the dead. You're the Christ of God, and we've seen your power. We see that God is blessing you, and now you teach this. The disciples could barely grasp it. In fact, they would, they would overlook it, and they'd be dejected. If we know how Luke's gospel ends, we'll someday get to chapter 24. And those disciples going down the road to Emmaus, kicking the can, Jesus died, and it's the third day, and we're still sad. The third day? Hello, disciples. Jesus said he would be raised on the third day. But they overlooked it. So when Jesus met with those disciples, as we'll see at the end of the gospel, he taught them of all these things that were necessary. And then they remembered. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the cross is central to Christianity, but it's not the end of Christ. He's alive today. And he's gone on in other places to tell us that he's coming back. So what's the main point here in the second heading? Jesus is the crucified Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who came to die. Not just to teach, to gather a following, to have a brand, and to be trending. He was. But he came to procure salvation. And that is vital to our understanding of Jesus. And that's the Jesus you need to believe in to be saved. Not just Jesus the teacher, 
Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the nice guy who spends time with people, the crucified one, the one who bled and suffered and died, that Jesus. And the word and brings us to the third paragraph. Verse 23, and he said to them all, not just Peter who had the right answer, but all his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The disciples of Jesus must bear our own cross as well. Not to save ourselves, but in service to the one who has saved us. There is a cost. I like how one sermon put it on this text. The cross of discipleship instead of the cost of discipleship. We're not always sure what the cost will be. I mentioned earlier we celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary, 1984 in July. Married in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a great old American city. And uh, married on a Saturday, Sunday morning. We're driving to Chicago to the airport because you know what comes next? The honeymoon. Um, I was so so poor. My honeymoon was a gift for my in-laws. But as poor, happy young people, we're on our way to Bermuda. Big deal. Warm place. So we're driving to the airport in Chicago, and my friend who was there took our car, and he'd pick us up later so I didn't have to worry about parking. Got dropped right at the the counter. We walk in. This is the old days before you had to uh, be strip-searched. We walked up to the Delta counter, and I said, Honey, just give me a second. She's wearing her corsage, and I think I had a boutonniere on. So I come up to the Delta counter, and I say, kind of quietly, I don't know why I asked. I said, what would it cost to upgrade to first class? My wife and I are going to Bermuda on our honeymoon. Uh, and, and, you know, tickets, really expensive even back then. And I was hoping that they might say something and maybe it would fit on my credit limit. And, and the lady looked at her, the ticket, looked at the screen and says, oh, it's not very much. And she took the ticket and tore it up and started typing to print the new ticket. And I start sweating. I said, what do you mean by not very much? I need to know the cost. I might not be able to afford you tore up my ticket. And in the midst of my panic, I'm sure I was turning white, about to faint. It was made clear that they were doing a complimentary upgrade. Uh, that, that was a great, great memory. And first class is pretty neat. I didn't know the cost. They didn't tell me. Jesus has gathered these disciples. They, they now know he's the Messiah. He's the one. They, they have the right leader. But Jesus says, wait. If you're going to follow me, I'm going to draw this line in the sand. I'm willing to die for you. I will take your sins on the cross. You might not understand the transaction yet, but you will. I'm going to do that as the crucified Christ for you. But if you believe who I am and what I've done for you, if you step across that line, if you're going to follow me, bring your own cross. 
No half-hearted disciples hedging your bets, serving yourself. If you want me as Savior, I will be your Lord. You must follow me with self-denial and a cross. We need to be clear, my friends, when we're talking to our neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not a fashionable accessory to someone's life. It's not a new hobby or pursuit to add to your weekends. Jesus is the Son of God, the Divine One, who was present at creation, who came on this mission to die as the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sin of His people. And if you want Him, these are the terms. Repent and believe and follow. And in following, bring your cross. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's just look at each phrase briefly. What is it to deny yourself? What is it to deny yourself? It doesn't mean you deny your identity. I still have my name. I still have the quirks that the Lord put into my personality. Those are being brought into the kingdom and sanctified. But I deny myself as for what I want and, and, and how I live. As, as Phil Reichen put it, to forget oneself entirely to reject any thought of doing what will please ourselves rather than please God. Praise God that a lot of this overlaps. God says, love your wife, and that is a pleasant command. At times it can be hard, but it pays off to obey God. My friends, this is the opposite of what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us to indulge yourself, to serve yourself, be true to yourself, follow your feelings, etc., etc., etc. That's the constant message. It butts up against the gospel call. If you follow Christ, you entrust yourself to him entirely and deny yourself. What does that mean practically? Well, number one, it means say no to sin. Say no to sin. You should no longer do that which displeases your God. Earlier in worship, we heard from Colossians chapter 3. You can go back and read it on your own, but Paul wrote to Christians there. And if you're hidden, your life is hidden with God, he says, put to death, therefore. Ooh, that's cross language. Get it? That's a pun. Cross meaning stern, but also Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Do Americans know about that one? Covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you're following Christ, 
you say no to those self-centered, sinful behaviors. Whether they're actions, thoughts, or attitudes. There may be good things that you say no to as well. You might need to say no to a self-indulgent use of time or resources. I'm going to do this for myself. Well, really? Did you check in with your Lord and Savior who redeemed your life from the pit? You are not your own. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Maybe you ought to check with Jesus your Lord. Maybe we say no to self-centered pleasures or pursuits. Even things that might be good and normal in themselves. And often Jesus says, yes, enjoy. But there is this command to self-denial which we are so quick to overlook. Friends, we may need to repent. Before you leave this room... Jesus was deadly serious with those first followers before they would take one more step. Jesus said, bring your cross. It's because of who he is that he can make that claim on us. He says, take my yoke upon you. Don't just be wanderers and self-serving sheep. Join my flock. Follow my lead. Be like your master. So the deny self is, is added. The positive take up your cross. We need to say no to some things and then actively take our stand and our, our forward progress so that we look and behave like the Christians we profess to be. You know, those first century disciples, Peter, James, John, all of them, they had seen people walking around with a large timber, the crossbeam of an instrument of execution. They've seen prisoners walking out to the place of the skull, carrying that crossbeam. That's what prisoners typically had to do. When Jesus was carrying his, it was too much on his beaten body. Someone helped him carry it. They had a vivid image of what this required. This isn't just some hyperbole or spiritual platitude. You, you, you want me to carry that crossbeam of Roman execution? That's a one-way journey. It ends in the grave. So be it. This is what Jesus calls us. Now, what are... Our crosses today. It's not simply the little things in life that bother you. Okay? Those are little things that bother you. Those are not crosses. So if you're stuck in traffic, somebody else is late, that's not your cross to bear for Jesus. If you're having a bad hair day, please don't say it's the cross you bear. The crosses are those pains incurred for your spiritual fidelity as a follower of Jesus. You're trying to follow Jesus and someone's pushing you back. Where are you going to be on Sunday? Are you going to come play golf with the guys? No, I'm going to worship at church. 
Oh, can't you do that another time? Oh, and you get that pushback, and they make fun of you. They mock you. That's beginning to think more of what a cross is. Many of you have heard of the great Christian lady, Joni Erickson Tata, who as a teenager became a paraplegic because of a swimming accident, and she was wheelchair-bound for decades. She's still alive, as I know it. And she sings, she paints, she does a lot of things, writes books, has a great ministry. But she has clearly spoken on this point and said, my wheelchair is not my cross. My pain and suffering for Jesus is a cross. Just so we're clear. And one way we we dodge carrying our cross is when we think we're doing it with all those daily trifles. Oh, the air conditioner broke. It's my cross to bear. No, when we do that, we're robbing the commandment of its truth and our responsibilities. Disciples of Jesus must deny self and take up a cross. Disciples of Jesus must follow him as Lord Notice how Jesus says, uh, deny, take up, and then follow. There's an active pursuit of Christ as Lord. And so that's what disciples are also called. The, The word for follow here means to follow as a disciple, to imitate. Well, Jesus was ill treated by the world for his faithfulness and truth to God. That's our path. Not popularity for popularity's sake faithfulness to our father in heaven if you profess to believe in jesus are you following him and then in verses 24 25 26 and 27 jesus actually motivates his disciples he knows how hard these things are not only for us but for them and so he gives uh, all sorts of of hints of how important this is verse 24 he speaks of this spiritual paradox For whoever would save his life will lose it. If you try to avoid angering anyone and covering your tracks and and being careful and not take up your spiritual duties, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life, lives it for the Lord, come what may, loses his life for my sake, will save it. That's a paradox. It begins to make sense when we see Jesus more clearly. Verse 25, he talks about the the profit motive, right? That ought to catch and hold weight with Americans. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his soul? There's a profit to spiritual losses, he seems to say. Jesus is reversing the market values that most economists and, and pundits talk about. Because you're following the wisdom of Christ, not the wisdom of the world. That should motivate us. There is profit in spiritual loss. There is life in spiritual self-denial and death. Verse 26, he he adds the pressure as a motivation, the pressure of spiritual accountability. Christ will return. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. There's going to be an accounting. That ought to sober us. 
In verse 27, there's the motivation of promise. Promise. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Think of the Beatitudes Christ told. For the encouragement and blessing of all his disciples, there are promises made. We'll talk more about that particular promise as we go through the rest of the gospel. But let me ask three questions as we close. And I hope you'll answer them. You don't have to answer them out loud, but I think you need to answer them as those who have heard God's word proclaimed to you. Number one, will you confess Jesus as Savior, as the crucified Christ? That was the question he asked, not simply to find out if you know the right answer, but will you believe in Jesus? The disciples had not yet seen the cross. They'd only followed Jesus so far, And we're told what we're told in the Gospel of Luke. And that seemed to be sufficient to bring Peter to faith. There's a sufficiency in what we read in the Bible for you to come to faith. Why would anyone delay when it's clear who Jesus is and why he has come? Don't you believe him? But if you profess faith in this Jesus, it's the Jesus as he is. Crucified, and the one who commands us to follow in his footsteps. Without a cross, there's no way for sinners to be forgiven. Second question Do you daily bear your cross? Do you daily deny yourself and bear your cross? Jesus expected this of all who would follow him. He spoke to all his disciples at this point, not just Peter, not just the the apostles. He speaks to us. It's a command. Are we obeying it? When you look at your life, is it self-indulgent or self-denying? Can you point to some moment where you said, Yeah, I'd rather be sitting around here, but I need to do this for my church, for my fellow believers, or for my neighbor. Is that even a part of our lives? I would encourage you to resolve this morning that there will be one area in your life that you will scrutinize all the more as you try to obey the word of Jesus. Less social media? Disciplining yourself instead of binge watching that series to read a Christian book so that you are equipped to bless others with knowledge or encouragement? Taking time with that difficult person or with the neighbor to go the extra mile? There was a young man from Wheaton College great specimen of America's youth who decided God wanted him to be a pioneering missionary to Ecuador. There wasn't a mission there, but he was going to pioneer a mission with his friends, Nate Saint. His name was Jim Elliott. And what he said as he departed, 
was this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He followed Christ so well, even though his life was so brief. The final question is this, because some people are just waiting for the sermon to end. So let me ask you, yeah, those who might just be waiting for this moment. What have you done with Jesus' words? Did you see that verse? I didn't camp on it yet. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And my words, having heard the demands of the Bible today, or week in and week out, or year in and year out, if you're treating them contemptuously or with indifference, if you really don't care what you've been hearing from the Bible today or at any time, are you ashamed of those words? If you profess to believe them for yourself, what have you done with them? You see, as Douglas Milne points out, what we do with Jesus' words tells us what it is we have done with Jesus and how we stand with him because Jesus and his words are one. And it is so profound and encouraging and exemplary when Paul can write to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was living it, he was preaching it, and he was paying the price for it. Can we say that? What have you done with the words of Jesus? He's watching. And he'll ask you when he comes back. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I have tried to be clear with your word this morning, and I know my own shortcomings in these very areas. Who am I to preach it, my friends? But it is to your word, O oh Lord, we must bend. We must conform. We must obey. Father, may we not be ashamed of your words. May we hear them, believe them, and obey them. May it start with me as well as my friends. Teach us this contrary call to self-denial which is so foreign to our culture, Lord. May we swim against the current and, and be willing to, to walk to the beat of your drum. And may you use our lives in ways that we might not yet perceive. For we want to follow Christ and leave the rest to you. Father, I pray for the one here today who's really struggling with this call. Help them, I pray. May they not turn away, for this is the only way to be right with you, is to come to Christ, 
to know him, to be his, and to not put that off. Oh, Heavenly Father, in your mercy, by your grace, because of your great love, bless each one who has heard the good news today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.